Charlotte Corday is not excited to go to Paris. There's very little to be excited about lately. As she climbs into the stagecoach, it becomes alarmingly clear how small it is from the inside. She's cramped, shoulder to shoulder with fellow passengers. Every time they hit a bump, they collide into each other. The odor of the horses is overwhelming, but it can't be avoided. It's far too hot in July to seal the carriage. The mountaineers navigating the countryside know this route intimately, but even they can't make the three-day journey move any faster. Their mundane conversation is probably very important to them, but it just puts Charlotte to sleep. Her snoozing gives a fellow passenger an opportunity to gawk at her. He becomes convinced he knows her. After a day on the road, the coach takes a break at Lisieux. The passengers disembark to stretch their legs, and the man immediately approaches Charlotte. He asks, Do I know you? Charlotte assures him they've never met before, but it does little to deter his advances. The man proposes that Charlotte must be the daughter of an old friend. Charlotte is frustrated. He clearly is a man who cannot take no for an answer. She won't be the first attractive single 24-year-old woman traveling alone to receive such attention. It's assumed that an independent woman on her way to Paris is someone with wealth and therefore should be courted. Even after denying him several times, the man has repositioned himself across from Charlotte in the stagecoach. She endures two more days of unwanted advances. She refuses to give him any information about her, so he calls her by the name he thinks is hers. Charlotte drowns out his voice by closing her eyes and remembering her mission. On July 11th, 1793, as the coach pulls up to the capital, the man leans into Charlotte and assures her that she could have him and all of his fortune if they marry. Despite trying to pawn him off on other passengers and condemning his ill attempts to entertain her with hideous songs and poetry, he clearly has not accepted her disinterest in him. But there is only one man on Charlotte's mind. The man she wants is Jean-Paul Marat, and she does not plan to court him. She plans to kill him. For What's the Story Sound, this podcast series places the listener firmly in our crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 2, Jean-Paul Marat. A young, gaunt washerwoman walks down the cobbled road in Paris as the sun descends into the Seine. Her arms and skirts are soaked. She's been scrubbing laundry since dawn. Her hands are raw with cracks and her stomach screams in agony. She's starving. Everyone is. Years of harsh weather and bad harvest have sent the price of wheat soaring. Suddenly, she hears the sound of cracking under her heels. 
As she lifts her foot, she can see the shards of glass flicker under her skirt. There's shouting coming from around the corner, and as she walks closer, it escalates to screams. A mob of people have broken through the facade of the bakery, and they're handing out bread to desperate rioters. The baker has been hoisted on the shoulders of the agitators. They think he's been hoarding bread. As they march him out, the crowd hurls insults at him. They're taking him to Place de la Révolution to meet the National Razor. As the washer watches the violence unfold, a young man dressed like a lawyer walks up and hands her a paper. He says, be part of the revolution. The paper is l'ami de peuple, the friend of the people. It is the voice of the French Revolution, but mainly it's the voice of its editor, a man called Jean-Paul Marat. Born in Boudry, now part of Switzerland, in 1743, Marat was the first of five children. His parents were well-educated, but lived a modest life. A childhood where morals and a love of learning would stand Marat in good stead. He studied medicine, though didn't gain any qualifications, and he impressed with his willingness to travel and take bold steps. Before Jean-Paul became France's most popular journalist, he was an aspiring scientist. He had built a reputation for himself in London as a well-known doctor and author, a reputation which earned him opportunity. He moved to France in 1776, to Paris, and was appointed as the physician of Louis XVI's personal guard. This was a coveted role. Jean-Paul enjoyed the luxury and shelter of the Palace of Versailles, but he was also torn with guilt and shame. Jean-Paul considered himself a man of the people, someone who didn't conform to the enviable high-society lifestyle of the royals. He watched the king throw parties for nobility and clergy, feasting on mountains of bread and buffets of fruit, while just outside his gate, children were starving. It made him sick. His response was to begin writing to the American revolutionary, Benjamin Franklin, to exchange scientific experiments and radical ideas. His plan was change. Revolution. They were building a democracy from scratch in the new world, free of royal rule and tyranny, exactly what the people of France needed. Jean-Paul's dissatisfaction with the divide between the haves and the have-nots prompted him to leave the Golden Gates of Versailles and apply to become a member of the Academy of Sciences. He had made many influential friends during his time in the palace, and his recent articles on electricity, fire and light had been met with praise. So Jean-Paul was shocked when he read the rejection letter. He blamed the aristocracy for shunning him, and he turned his back on them accusing the Academy of not being capable of accepting new ideas. The rejection marked a pivotal moment in the life of Jean-Paul Marat. This sour mindset began to seep into his political thinking. He had originally supported the king, 
and believed that only the monarch could pull France out of despair. But now, he wrote in his newspaper that the king was only concerned with his own finances and couldn't care less about the people's suffering. John Paul's articles were filled with idealism and called for blood. Marat had a vision that he couldn't realize alone. He partnered with the radical revolutionary, Maximilien Robespierre, the new leader of the extreme political party, the Jacobin. Both Robespierre and Marat believed France could only become a country of the people if they started from scratch. This required the complete elimination of sovereign reign, religious influence, and current government. But for the Jacobin, it wasn't enough to overthrow these institutions. They must be exterminated. And the weapon of choice was the guillotine. The Jacobin were fighting to gain control of the current government, the National Assembly. But they were stalled by the ruling Girardin, who opposed their violent methods. As Jean-Paul's vitriol grew and gained more attention with his readers, the Royalists were fighting to keep Louis XVI in power. They wanted to hunt Jean-Paul down and silence him. Fearing for his safety, Jean-Paul descended into the sewers to hide among the rats and the bile. It was the only place he felt secure. But his chosen hiding place was hardly one of safety. Huddled in the dark and damp, he developed an agonizing skin disease. Rashes, boils, and open wounds covered most of his body. And even after breaking cover, his only comfort was to soak in a bath with medicinal herbs. The pain of his skin condition became so unbearable that Jean-Paul stopped attending meetings at the National Convention. He couldn't even supervise the printing of his paper. Instead, he would send his partner, Simone Evrard, to take his handwritten articles and correspondence from the bathtub to the press. Life for Jean-Paul Marat was not what he'd once dreamed. In Jean-Paul's absence, Robespierre lost patience with the Girardin. In front of the National Assembly, he called for the removal of the king. It was a call that received overwhelming support. The people of France backed him and drafted a petition to dethrone Louis XVI. There was so much upheaval that the government and standing constitution were completely removed. The Girardin lost power and were replaced by newly elected Jacobin, who brought with them a new constitution. They deemed anyone who supported the royal family, royal reign, and Christianity of any kind as a traitor who must be executed. Their purge of the royals took them to the Tuileries Palace, the Parisian home of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. The couple were arrested and imprisoned in the temple, charged with high treason and crimes against the state. Their days of sipping champagne with courtesans in palaces were well and truly over. As far as the Jacobin are concerned, they'd be lucky to drink clean water in their new rat-infested prison. On January 21st, the once Grand King looked gaunt and small as he lowered his head into the carved-out nook at the base of the guillotine. In the blink of an eye, the royal reign of France was gone, and the new target of the Jacobins' aggression has become the Girardin. The execution of King Louis didn't signal an end to the violence. France was shrouded in terror, 
Public executions and massacres became commonplace. Anyone showing allegiance to the church or the throne was seen as a threat and eliminated. Thousands of people met their end by the razor-sharp blade all across France. A hundred and twenty-five miles away from Paris, in the region of Normandy, is the port city of Caen. In the center is a stunning castle built by William the Conqueror. It's surrounded by Romanesque abbeys. One houses a convent where a young Charlotte Corday grew up. She was sent there with her younger sister after their mother died in childbirth. She remembers the beautiful last rites the priest Abbe Gombo recited. After the funeral, he looked after the girls and made sure they got the education they deserved. But as a result of the new National Assembly, the convent and the abbeys closed. Religion was forbidden after all. Running a convent would be like waving a red rag to a bull. Priests and nuns went into hiding as news of massacres spread through the regions. When Girardin began to settle in Caen, people didn't think much. They continued to scrape by as best they could. But now that the Jacobin were out for blood, everyone was on edge. People were so desperate and hungry, they'd give up the location of a nun for a loaf of bread. The tracking dogs have been howling all morning. They start in the vicarage and can be heard from the market. They're looking for priest Abbe Gombo the religious man who stands for everything the Jacobins despise. He's discovered hiding in the woods. He's marched to a public platform in the center of the city. In front of the growing crowd, the priest is declared a traitor and beheaded as a warning. Charlotte is devastated. She doesn't understand why a man who has helped her and so many in the city can be seen as an enemy. Politics were not part of her secluded life. Charlotte had spent many nights reading the works of Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Denis Diderot. These are the same books the Jacobin claimed to model the revolution. But Charlotte does not see their violent acts as the rational change the philosophers say is needed to improve humanity. In the bar of l'Hôtel de l'Intendance, Charlotte orders a drink. While waiting for her glass of wine to be served, she overhears the disgust in a man's voice as he rants to his companions. The man is in a dark military coat with glittering gold rope draped on the shoulders. He sputters about the appalling behavior of the Jacobin. Charlotte is horribly wounded by the death of her friend and is shocked to hear someone speaking so liberally against Jacobin in public. She walks over and the table rise to their feet. She introduces herself to the group. The man she overheard protesting introduces himself as Charles Barbaro. He invites her to join the table and explains that they are a group of Girardin refugees left behind after the Jacobin took control. Charlotte's small world suddenly opens up and all her sadness, fear and anger finds companions. She's not alone. They meet frequently at the hotel and discuss the philosophies of the Age of Enlightenment. The Girardins explain the series of unfortunate events that have brought them to the Reign of Terror. 
Charles teaches Charlotte about revolution and explains how the Jacobin, specifically Maximilien Robespierre and Jean-Paul Marat, have become drunk with power. Charlotte had never had wild manifestations about her destiny, but through the course of these meetings, she finds purpose. Her bag is packed on the bed, and she seals two letters with wax before collecting her things and heading to the stagecoach. As she walks over, she does one last mental checklist. Debts, settled. Letters to dad, auntie and cousin, written and sealed. She knows Jean-Paul Marat will either be at the National Assembly, his printing press nearby, or in attendance at the Bastille Day Parade. The parade is her preferred location. She's ready, or at least as ready as she'll ever be. After the grueling three-day journey, Charlotte shakes off her unwanted suitor and sets off to the Hotel de la Providence to rest. The following day, Charlotte heads to the lobby and sees the Bastille Day Parade is cancelled on the front page of the paper. She becomes flustered. Her plan is ruined. She marches out to the street to get some air. She needs a new plan. As she tries to regroup, she looks into a window and sees an elegant black hat with ribbons cascading off. She thinks if she's going to perform an act of chivalry, why not wear appropriate armor? The shopkeeper asks if Charlotte has just arrived in Paris. She says she had planned to attend the parade but just heard the sad news. Charlotte then asks for the location of the National Convention and the Jacobin. Charlotte plays the role of tourist well. After getting directions and paying for her new hat, she asks the milliner one more thing. Does he happen to know where she may purchase a kitchen knife? Charlotte navigates herself to the Palais Royal. This stunning palace is at the heart of the city. As she walks into the grand courtyard, she's startled by the freedom that is expressed here. This is where Robespierre found his voice, where starving Parisians found hope. This is where the Jacobin gained power and where Jean-Paul Marat's broadsheet was built. She approaches the presses and acts inquisitive and naive. She asks a man in a leather apron, frantically pulling an enormous lever, if he is pressing the latest edition of L'Ami de Peuple. He nods at her but does not engage in conversation. She asks if Mara is in attendance, and he says no. Charlotte accepts she's not getting anywhere with this gentleman. The Salle de Ménage used to be the riding academy in the gardens of the Tuileries Palace. The grand building was commandeered by the National Assembly when King Louis XVI was forced to relocate. Charlotte finds the chamber and approaches a boy rushing around with a silver pitcher of water. She asks if Jean-Paul Marat is in attendance and where she can find him. The boy explains that Marat's illness has prevented him from coming in for quite some time but she can find him at his home on the left bank. He rarely leaves his bath these days, but he works there and does take meetings. She thanks the boy and gives him some money for his troubles. Charlotte has a plan. She goes back to her hotel and writes a letter addressed to the French people, calling them the friends of peace. The following morning, she plants the letter in her skirt, leaves early and heads straight to the Palais Royal. While conducting yesterday's reconnaissance, she saw Baden Cutler's shop 
and walks straight up to a display case filled with kitchen knives. She points to a six-inch knife with a wooden handle and asks the salesman to give it to her. When she leaves, she manages to fold the knife into the fabric of her skirt so it can hide. On July 13th at 11 a.m., Charlotte stands on the drab landing of 30 Rue de Cordelier, Jean-Paul Marat's home. She knocks, and a disheveled woman answers. It's Marat's companion, Simone Everard. She asks what Charlotte wants. Charlotte tells the lady she would like an audience with Marat, and explains she has information about a planned Girardin uprising in Caen. The woman shoos her away and says he's busy. Charlotte is stunned. This was not part of the plan. She didn't expect a sentry to stand guard over that bathing beast inside. She took a deep breath and knew if she could convince this woman, then surely she'll get inside. She knocks again, and this time, as soon as Simone opens the door and sees Charlotte, she closes it before Charlotte can speak. Charlotte is furious. She finds a cafe and stops to think. She has to get past Jean-Paul's companion. In order to do that, she has to convince her to let her in. Charlotte is not a politician. She's not an author or an artist. She has nothing to sell, no money to use as a bribe, no skill to offer. But she does have something she can trade. She asks the waitress for paper and a pencil. She begins to write down the names of the 18 Girardins, whom she represents in Caen and Normandy, her friends and comrades. She knows Jean-Paul has been hunting them. Surely this is her ticket in. Now, armed with purpose, Charlotte knocks a third time at 7 p.m. This time, when Simone opens, Charlotte shoves the folded paper at her and says, This is for Jean-Paul Marat. I believe he has been looking for them. The paper says, enemies of the revolution. Simone looks down, and though she's dubious, she invites Charlotte in. She's led into a small room with a brick tile floor and worn wallpaper. A map of France hangs on the wall, and the window is open. The room reeks of rot with the faint smell of herbs. Jean-Paul is sat in a tub shaped like an ankle boot. It has a tall back with a linen sheet draped across it and submerged inside for his comfort. Another linen sheet is draped across the opening to preserve his dignity. Across the sheet is a board covered in papers with an ink pot and a quill. This has become Jean-Paul's office as his condition has become worse. He pays little attention to Charlotte as she enters the room. He's excited and frantically writing. Simone hands him Charlotte's note and motions to her to sit in a chair next to the tub. She does, but leans into the open window. The smell is revolting. She looks at Jean-Paul, whose head is wrapped in a filthy vinegar-soaked handkerchief. He opens the note and looks like a hound about to devour his prey. He dips his quill and begins to copy the names of Charlotte's beloved friends. He looks up at Charlotte and says, huh. We'll soon have them all guillotined in Paris. Charlotte is looking at the eyes of a monster. Her heart is beating so fast she can hear it. She finds the knife handle in her skirt and grips it. Before Jean-Paul can finish copying the names, 
She plunges the six-inch blade through his lung, slicing open his aorta and stopping in the left ventricle of his heart. Jean-Paul shouts out and dies almost instantly as his blood pours into the bath. Charlotte stands beside the bath like a statue. Simone rushes in with the distributor of Jean-Paul's newspaper. She screams at the horrific sight, and the man immediately seizes Charlotte. The authorities arrive quickly and angry crowds begin to gather outside the residence. They tie Charlotte's hands behind her back and march her to the conciergerie. The angry mob in the streets wanted to tear her limb from limb. The trial was quick. Charlotte did not deny the charges against her and she knew her fate. After four days, she was convicted and sentenced to the guillotine. While waiting in prison, she wrote to Charles Barbaro and her father. She asked them not to mourn her death, but to instead look after one another and find solace, knowing she sacrificed herself to bring peace to the country. They will never receive the letters. Charlotte is wearing a red dress to symbolize her crime. Sanson, the revolution's executioner, requested her chestnut hair be cut to avoid the guillotine's blade slowing. The concierge took her to the salle de toilette and gave the locks to Sanson's wife, who would collect the hair of the executed and make wigs for sale. Charlotte stood out among the eleven other women in the triangular courtyard of the Carré de Douze. A large bell rang as the tumbrel arrived at the iron gate. The women loaded into the cart like cattle being brought to slaughter. A group of black-toothed women began to heckle Charlotte mercilessly outside the gate. They are the knitter women who make bandages for the revolutionary soldiers. The public prosecutor hires them to rile the crowd and humiliate all prisoners of the revolution as they make their final voyage to the National Razor. As the trumble pulls away, it begins to rain. Maximilian Robespierre and fellow Jacobin watch from a balcony overlooking the procession to the Place de la Révolution. The weather reflects the mood of the crowd and will not deter the raging revolutionaries from getting the satisfaction of vengeance. Charlotte is calm and composed through the hate speech and projectiles. The streets are so clogged that the usually quick journey takes two hours. The rain stops as the tumbrel finally reaches the foot of the guillotine. A purple sunset floods the sky. Some among the twelve scream and beg for mercy. Others struggle hopelessly to be free. Only Charlotte mounted the scaffold steps without hesitation or assistance. She gave herself willingly to Sanson's blade. After her head is severed, the carpenter and handyman of the guillotine, Legros, picks Charlotte's head out of the basket and slaps it. He's arrested and tried for mistreating the dead and sentenced to three months in prison. Charlotte's remains are tossed without ceremony among other victims of the reign of terror into a public grave. Sanson, the executioner, kept her head. It will exchange hands several times before being laid in its final resting place in the catacombs of Paris. Charlotte's farewell letter to the French people claims, with my single act of violence, 
I will bring peace to my nation. The Jacobin wanted to honor Jean-Paul Marat and also leave a legacy that he was a martyr for the revolution. He is presented on an altar under a shroud in the amphitheater of Saint-Coum and then paraded through the streets. He's buried in the monastery gardens of Église de Cordelier. Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy Lewis. Sound design by Tom Bruins. Our music is supplied by KPM. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content? at www.whatsthestorysounds.com.